Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Hi, this is David Sachs with a special midweek podcast on love and raising up fallen love. If you'd like to be part of the Zoom talks that we've been doing, subscribe at TorahOnItunes.com. We'd love to make you a part of the community. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, We're going to uh, talk about a lot of things um, that sort of like really address kind of kind of the deepest things about kind of being alive and 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 some of the kind of uh issues about just kind of what it means to to stretch your mind to grow to to sort of address this this sort of interesting question of of how we're hardwired our brains are sort of hardwired at birth so um we'll we'll sort of cover all of these things uh, and maybe to introduce the whole thing, I wrote a little something this week. Um, it's just a few lines. I, I call it learning. Um, so, so here it is. We'll just start off with this, okay? So, first you know nothing. Then you, little, then you learn a little, and you think you know something. But then you know less than you did before, because you think you actually know something. Then you learn more and actually do know something. But you ruined it by forgetting that you really know nothing. Then you learn even more, and you finally realize that you really, really do know nothing, which means you finally know something. Baruch Shem Kavod So that's my, that's my little poem. <laughs> I'll maybe copy and, copy and paste that, but... But years and years of learning went into that. That's kind of like a diary of my kind of uh, learning experience. Or, and I think probably it captures it for, for all of us, um, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, anyway, um, so, so let's, let's, let's go a little bit further. There is a, there is a huge pusik, a, a huge verse in, in uh, this week's Torah portion, which which is one of those um, very, very quoted ones and kind of one of the most famous ones in the entire Torah. And, and it goes like this. And now, what does Hashem ask of you? Only that you should have Yira for him. Um, and Yira, of course, is, is translated in, 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 in most English translations as fear. Just that you should fear God. And, and then it, it goes on, and it, um, it tells you that you should love him with all of your heart, and you should walk in his ways, and, and a whole string of things. So, so seemingly, all of these extra blessings um, and, and attachments to God all, all start with this, like, this awesome aspect called Yira. So, again, it's, it's often translated, and, and this is one of those kind of double-edged swords, um, because th- this translation of, of, of Yira as fear of God um, it has been sort of extremely alienating to uh, people for generations now, especially contemporary generations, because when people hear the, the concept of fear of God, which we're going to explain and go deeper into, um, what, what they hear is that you should be afraid of God. And if, you, if I am now being told, instructed to be afraid of God, then is God my best friend in the entire world? Is God my, my love, my, 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 my parent, my, my, you know, my beloved king? No, God is some sort of tyrant that probably means bad for me. And stay in line. You better be afraid of him. Stay in line. And, and that's kind of what this world is, and that's what your life is, and, and that's, that's kind of what it is. And there's religion in a nutshell for most people, which is why people run from it, 
they don't want any part of it because if that's God, then what do I need him for? You know what I mean? Let me roll the dice and take my chances. And there's 7 billion people in the world. Maybe he won't see me. Maybe I'll just stay under the radar just craftily enough or do enough amounts of good to stay out of his sights and I'll be good. You know, this is unfortunately the way it goes uh, for most people and for many generations now. So we have to um, address this issue of what does Yerushamayim mean? And it must be pretty great. And I mean it in a very positive way. Yera must be pretty great because we know that God is good and that God only does good and that God is our great love, and that everything that happens, even if we can't understand it, is for our good. So if that's the case, and that's the reality, which it is, then why, what, what does this verse mean? And now the only thing God asks of us is that we should have year for him. Right, So it can't mean that you should be afraid of him. It can't mean that, that he means bad for us. So then what does it mean? What is the greatness of year? This is our question for now, okay? And hopefully we're going to go to a very deep place, but we have to start with this very fundamental idea. Now remember, it says that there are two great attributes one is, in terms of our divine service, one is Yerushamayim, uh, which we can now introduce a new word instead of just fear of God. Um, it also means awe of God. And, and, and we can get into that a little bit more. But, but, but let's, let's keep it with the word Yira. But since we introduced this idea of awe, let's just cover this. This is... Um, just kind of like Jewish literacy 101 for everyone who doesn't know it. You, you have to have this cemented in your brain. So let's just go over it quickly. Year really has two primary aspects to it. You have the lower yira, which is translated as fear of God, which means, by the way, my actions have consequences and I am responsible for them. And they can introduce, if I'm being reckless, uh, negativity into the world, and that ultimately that will come back to me. So, so that's called the lower yira, meaning fear of punishment. But it's a real thing. It's a real thing, and it has its place. But then you have what is really more our goal, which is the higher yira. And the higher yira would be translated as awe of God. Now, awe of God, I heard in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, can be compared to a person walking into this awesome, exalted palace. And it's like the most beautiful, majestic thing you've ever seen in your life. And the last thing that you want to do, because you're just so amazed by the grandeur and the beauty of it all, the last thing that you want to do is track your muddy boots into this place or knock over any of the things and break things or cause a mess. You just want to leave it as pristine and as beautiful as it is. So that's that's Yira. It's the same thing that we've been talking about this whole time. That's the higher Yira. And so the question is really, and so just to complete that thought, ideally we're existing in terms of a relationship, in terms of the realms of the higher Yira, which means that our relationship with Hashem is so precious that we don't want to do anything to disturb it. We don't want to do anything wrong. That anything should come between this awesome love that we have between us and the infinite. Okay. So now the question is, how do you balance, how do you weight those two aspects of Yira, the lower Yira and the higher Yira in your life? That's, that's one question. In other words, are you more walking down the sidewalk and blowing your mind over the infinity of reality and of this world and of the beauty of everything, right? Or are you 
tiptoeing around because God is going to zap you at any moment. Right? So depending on how you answer that question will be a window into how you're balancing the lower yira and the higher yira. But both of those are still within the category of yira shamayim. Again, translated in most English texts as fear of God. But now we see this idea of fear is really also meaning awe, and that that ideally is going to be the majority of our experience, okay? But still, that's just half of it. The other half of it is ava, which means love. And this is called, again, the two wings of the dove. You have ava and you have yira. You have love and awe or love and fear. And with those two things, a person can take flight. Now, if you, I, I came up with this a while back, but let me just remind you of it. It's a, it's a spiritual self-exam. If you want to take your spiritual temperature, right? You want to see, how am I doing in terms of my relationship with God? Well, you can do it at any, any moment, and it's, um, it's a very easy test. And you administer it on yourself, okay? Which is, if you feel as though God is about to zap you, and he's so angry, and he's going to get you, right? Well, probably you have too much yira in your life, and you need to increase the Ava. You have to increase your understanding that God loves you. God loves you to pieces. He understands our humanity. He understands that we all make mistakes. He created forgiveness before he even created us. All of those things, okay? Now, that's if you have, that, that's a sign that you have too much Yira in your life. You, you, you're walking around tiptoeing, right? I'm going to get zapped. Now, if you are walking around saying, ah, I can eat at McDonald's and this mitzvah doesn't apply to me and that mitzvah doesn't apply to me, you know, because God loves me so much, none of these things really apply to me. So then that's an example that you have, you need a little more yira in your life. You need more yira in your life because you've kind of, you know, it's like there has to be a recognition that we are responsible for our actions and that God cares about what we do, that this is, that this is a relationship. Like imagine you, you have a loved one. I don't have to call them on their birthday. They know I love them. It's your anniversary. Haven't I been a great husband? Haven't I been a great wife? I don't have to acknowledge the anniversary. It's just another day. Every day is our anniversary, right? Right? So all of a sudden, now you're the you're just the greatest guy in the world. You're not calling on birthdays. You're not acknowledging anniversaries. Wow, are you great? You see, you can delude yourself. And this is the idea of having two... What, what the Rambam calls in a negative sense, self-love. So you have self-esteem. That's essential. Everyone has to understand that they've got a piece of God within them and that they are inherently great by virtue of that alone. But then you have something which is a little more toxic, and that's called self-love, where you forgive yourself for things that really you should be more responsible with. Okay? So, so again... The spiritual self-exam is if you're feeling like God's going to zap you, you need to increase your notion of that God loves you. If you feel as though you can get away with murder, then you need a little bit more yira, a little more yira in your life. Okay, and those are the two wings of the dove, and with them you fly. Okay, now all of this has just been introduction and review for this more sort of like uh, fundamental question which is, why does the verse say, and now what does God ask of you? Only that you should have yira of him, right? Love, uh, or it's translated as awe slash fear. If you think about it for a moment, it doesn't say, and now 
what, what do I ask of you? Just that you should love me. It doesn't say that. It, and yet we know these are two wings of the dove. And yet the thing that God asks of us is Yira. Right? So that's interesting. Not only that, but the Rebbe's that I've seen, including most recently the B'nai Sascher, right? And I saw it from the Chernobyl Rebbe as well. These are the greatest spiritual authorities. Say that you begin with the foundation of Yira, and then from Yira comes Ava. From this awe slash fear comes, comes love. So, so the reason why I, I think this is, this is very central. This is very, very central. Um, I'm going to give you a more technical answer first, but it's very interesting. And this comes from uh, Rabbi Frimer, uh, the, the, the Rosh Hashiva of Hachme Lublin, Olav Sholem. And it, it's a more um, shot answer. Okay, in terms of just kind of like just the basic mechanics of why God is asking for Yira. Now, on this Pasuk, if you look it up in the Chumash and you look at the Rashi on it, Rashi brings the famous statement from the Gomorrah that Kol Chutz Hashem, that everything is in the hands of heaven except Yira Shemayim, except the fear slash awe of heaven. That's the only thing that's actually in our hands. Now, without getting into a very deep conversation about the nature of free choice, which the sages say we do have, what this, what this means is that everything is in the hands of heaven except how we react to it, okay? The, whether, whether, we, whether we really understand that it's coming from God, everything, and that it's coming for our good. That's our central choice in life to arrive at that conclusion. So what Rob Frimer says, and, and this, is, uh, this is also, <clears throat> this is very interesting, which is, which is that, you know, there are different ways to categorize the mitzvahs. One very fundamental categorization is you have the, um, what's called the positive commandments and the negative commandments. Or in Hebrew, we'd say the mitzvahs aseh and the mitzvahs lotaseh. Or in old English, thou shall and thou shalt not. <laughs> right? These are all different ways of saying the same thing. Two basic categories. Now, interestingly, uh, the Ramban says, and Rav Frimer quotes this, that all of the thou shalls, all the mitzvahs ase, that you should do these things, are expressions of love. And all of the lotases, the shalt nots, are expressions of yira. Now, listen to this next step. It's very interesting. Now you really see a halachic Talmudic mind at work, okay? In order to do something, like for instance, let's say to put on tefillin. Well, I kind of need two things to put on tefillin. One is an arm, and the other is tefillin. Now, both of those things are out of my control. Right? It's in the hands of God whether I'm going to have an arm, and it's in the hands of God whether I'm going to have the, the financial wherewithal or access to tefillin. And that will be generally true of all of the positive commandments. In other words, like for to put up a mezuzah. Well, if a person is homeless, they can't put up a mezuzah. And they may not have the ability to have a home. Right? Like if, imagine a person, God forbid, is a refugee. They, they don't, you don't put on a Mezuzah on a tent, by the way. So, so in other words, all of the mitzvahs, say positive commandments, require you to have something, 
And ultimately, all of those things only are given to you if God wills it, which means that you don't have control over those things. So now we're almost at the point. That means the only thing that I have true jurisdiction over are the lotases, the shout nots, which are in the category of yira, which means those I ultimately do have control over, the performance of mitzvahs that are yira-based. Now let's put it all together. According to Rabbi Frummer, and again, this is taking a very logical approach to understanding this verse, why does it say, and now all that I ask of you is that you should fear me? Because those mitzvahs which correlate with the category of fear are the ones that I have control over. Everything else ultimately is a gift and I may have access to, but I may not have access to. Okay, so that's just a kind of like a very, again, Talmudic, logical understanding of how that works. But that's a great insight in and of itself. Um, you know, years ago, I was thinking, and it, it plays into this, that really the only thing a person has in life, I mean, God should bless us, he should give us wonderful, beautiful things in, in abundance, but um, really everything can be taken away from us. And I don't want to be a downer, or dwell on the negative, but I'm, I'm just talking facts. And if you think about it, the only thing that can't be taken away from, the, from a person is your relationship with God. It's really the only thing that can't be taken away from you. And so that ties in with this idea of, and now what does God ask of us? Just that we should have yira, right? Because ultimately, what else do we really, really have? Okay. But now I want to go deeper and I want to go back to... Uh, a question that I brought up earlier, which is, you know, I'll speak for myself, but I think that this applies to many people, especially those of us who have grown up in, in uh, you know, in contemporary society. I guess that's all of us. Um, I, I did not grow up in, a, in, a, uh, in an Orthodox family. So, so I was, you know, very much a child of, of modern liberal sec- secular culture. And so, so one of the things that just I absorbed through osmosis is that, that if you do something from your own heart, that that's the highest thing. In other words, if, if I... I did, I, I did this because, because I wanted to do this for you. It comes from me. That's the highest. And the Talmud says, and now remember, the Talmud is writing, you know, before all of this, the Talmud says, it's higher to be commanded to do something <laughs> than to do it from the goodness of your heart. And why? A very interesting answer, very challenging answer. Because when you're commanded to do something, you want to do it less. (laughs) Therefore, it takes a greater amount of effort to do it. Therefore, it is a higher service. But we're going to go deeper still. We're going to go deeper still because... The reason why, again, um, the reason why I'm telling you all these things is because these are so central. If you want to think like a Jew, if you want to think like a, a Torah person, if you want to understand the world, the way our sages and, and our tzaddikim, you know, our holy ones, understand this world, this is one of the windows into a central understanding into reality. But we still haven't fully communicated yet. We're, we're, we're going to continue to go deeper. Don't worry. So, so why 
Here's the question. Why is Yira higher than Ava? Why is fear slash awe of God higher than love? Eventually, they're going to be called the two wings of the dove, which means that they're going to have to work in tandem with each other. But, 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 but Torah is pretty much unabashedly saying the foundation of those two is Yira, right? Is this awe slash fear? Okay, so, so why? Um, so let me, let me answer it in a simple way and then explain my answer further. You see, we, we have two, two, two concepts in life, very, very important reference points that everyone should be familiar with. We have what's called objective reality, and we have subjective reality. Objective reality is, that's what it is. It's just the facts. Subjective reality means that I am projecting my own understanding and my own desire onto the picture, and, and, and I am sort of like reframing it or redefining it according to my own personal experience. Um, both of them are neutral. They're just, is one better than the other? No, they're just two things. Okay, so for instance, let's say there's a riot going on, right? And that that's just the truth. People are breaking um, store windows and they're looting and they're randomly beating up people on the streets. It's, it is every definition of a riot, okay? They're turning over cars, they're torching things, okay? Now, that's the objective reality. It's a riot. Now, you walk out and you say, it's a rave, man. This is an awesome party. (laughs) Okay, so the objective reality is it's a riot. The subjective reality is it's an awesome party where anything goes. (laughs) Do you hear the difference? Okay. So, so Yira, Yira is greater than Ava, or let's put it again, eventually the two are going to have to, to work in tandem with each other. Again, they become the wings of the dove. But initially, Yira is greater than Ava because Yira addresses the objective reality that all that exists is God. Let me, let me say it again. Yira is the foundational idea that we start with because Yira addresses our objective reality, which is all that exists is God. Okay? And we are immersed in the oneness of God. And if we are immersed in the oneness of God, and God has communicated to us what he wants of us, which are the mitzvot, to perform the mitzvot, then that has to be our starting point. So, so now let me give you the other side of it. Why, according to this way of understanding it, and I think this is the way to understand it, why Ava, why love is not the fundamental foundational point. Because love says, I love. And now I'm starting with the word I. Now I'm starting with my own subjective reality. I love. Do do you see the problem with that? Is is it clear? And now everything, I become the center of everything. And that's not reality.
You know, I always love this example. That uh, it's a piece of a gadita from the from the Talmud, which is about a bunch of sailors, and they see an island, and uh, they go, "Oh, you know what? Um, let's get off the ship. We'll get into our kind of our little rowboats, and we'll we'll go over to that island. We'll make a barbecue. It will be uh, it'll be nice. You know, we'll get a little kind of time off the ship, and it will be relaxing." So they, they go over to the island, they, they, they light a little campfire to, to, to cook their food, and then all of a sudden, the island turns upside down, and all the people fall into the ocean. And what they realized was, that thing that was sticking out of the water that they thought was an island, was actually the hump of a whale. I always go back to that piece of imagery because sometimes there are certain things that we put our faith in that we shouldn't put our faith in. They seem so real to us, so foundational to us, that we put our faith in them and it's a slippery slope. It's the back of a whale and it can toss you at any moment, right? Like if you know, if you talk to anyone who lives in Israel, they go, Mm, America, mm, America, you know, I mean, that's just what one contemporary example of this. But, you know, there are a million examples of this. And I'm going to give you an even more profound e- example of this. You ready for this? I, I am the foundational element of the world. I. And I and Ava, because love, Ava, comes from me. And if that's, if that subjective reality is the foundational element of everything, no, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's got to be Yira. It's got to be Yira. Because Yira, awe slash fear, Yira, expresses the objective reality that all that exists is God and that God has very specific desires for us. Now, we're going to go more deeply into that, but let me... Well, b- before we do, I want to I tell you something, which is kind of... It's, it's an explanation that I have for uh, something that I, 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 I've heard uh, f- from different classic sources, including the Chofetz Chaim, which is embarrassment is the best Gehenim. Okay, let's loosely translate Gehenim as hell, for those of you who don't know what Gehenim is. It's different than hell. It's temporary. It's not everlasting. It's a whole subject in and of itself. It's just basically this purification stage before we hit heaven um, that everyone zips through, you know, even the tzaddikim, you know, and but they just zip through it. Other people stay longer in it. It's kind of like dry cleaning for the soul and um, whatever. But but Gehenim, the best Gehenim is embarrassment. In other words, somehow embarrassment or humiliation, cleanses the soul. Why? How? That's the question. So based on what we've just been talking about in terms of God being the only objective reality in existence and acknowledging that that, that the if, if I start <clears throat> in terms of my worldview, that the fundamental reality is I, right? That, um, that that's a very shaky foundation. That's like the, the whale that's going to turn over. Okay? So it says in, in Gomorrah Sota that um, God can't stand arrogant people. That God flees. He runs from arrogant people. What's the whole idea of arrogance? Arrogance means that, that a person thinks very, very, very highly of themselves. So highly of themselves. You know, do you know who I am? 
Rabbi Green gave a, an amazing example of this. I love this so much. He says, imagine you, um, <clears throat> there's an actor who's playing King Henry, you know, uh, in some, you know, on stage. I don't know, it's King Henry VIII or whatever number. And, you know, while he's performing, he's like, off with your head and this and that. You know, he's this, you know, ultimate autocrat. Then, um, you know, people applaud. They like the performance very much. And then he goes into his dressing room and uh, someone stops by, you know, to say hello. And he says, did you knock? (laughs) How dare you enter into my quarters? And it's sort of like, yo, dude, you're not really King Henry VIII. <laughs> Do you really think you're still King Henry VIII? That's, that's an act, right? You know that, right? What do you mean? See, this is, this is the, the idiocy, the absurdity of arrogance. Arrogance is this inflated concept of this self where essentially we're just playing this role in this world. We're just, we're just reflections of God, you know, with, with our marching orders, essentially. Not to say that this world isn't filled with delights and joy and love and beautiful things. It is. But when we make ourselves into the center, God goes, okay, you're running the world, so what do you need me for? Bye. That's the, that's the simple way of understanding that God flees from an arrogant person. Okay. So again, let's return back to our question. What does it mean that embarrassment is the best Gehenim? So we know a Gehenim is a soul cleansing. So when I get embarrassed, what happens? My eye gets compromised, it gets lowered, it gets, let's say, chiropractically readjusted. (laughs) I'm now back into the greater context of the ultimate reality being God. Not only that, but the Zohar says that when Hashem says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, which is the first of the Ten Commandments. And remember, the whole Torah is included in the Ten Commandments. And the whole Ten Commandments is included in the Anochi of the statement of God just saying, I am. Everything is included into Anochi, I am, when God speaks that, all of the mitzvahs. So when I get embarrassed, my, my arrogance, my I, my Anochi, the anochi that I've stolen from God to make myself the center, all of a sudden disappears, and the real anochi, that only God is God, only God is the objective reality of the universe, that reasserts itself, and the acknowledgement of that contains the entire Torah, which then becomes a giant soul cleansing for me. You see how it works? So, if you understand that you're just part of the greater reality, which is the objective truth, because there's only God and we're just an aspect of that, of that godliness, look around the world. Look at all of creation. Look at how precise everything is. Look how precise the subatomic world is. Look how precise... The orbits of the galaxies are. Look at how precise DNA is. Look how precise everything is in in nature. And so when God says, don't mix wool with linen, you go, well, it doesn't make any sense to me. What's wrong? What What did wool do to linen? What did linen do to wool? I have to be careful about that? Why would God's desire be any less precise for us than it is for the rest of creation? 
So if you're trying to wrap your mind around the specificity of the mitzvahs, just look to all of nature and how hyper-specific it is. And ask yourself, why would I not be subject to the same type of intricacy of vision? From the heavenly standpoint. And again, if one thinks but not me, then you have to go back to the spiritual self-exam. And ask yourself, do I have too much ava? Do I need more yira? Okay. So now, I want to go deeper. How is it possible for God to communicate everything? Right? And, and, and there's so many surprising ways in which this ultimate reality filters down into this world. Right? Putting leather boxes on your, between, you know, your forehead and your heart. And I'm like, wow, like there's, the oneness of God gets filtered down into this world in so many different surprising ways. If I light the candles Friday, one minute later, I've lit in a fire on Shabbos and I've broken like a fundamental command of Shabbos. If I light it one minute earlier, then I'm like restoring the great light into the world from the beginning of creation. Like, like it's really like, really, like if baseball's a game of inches, imagine like mitzvahs, wow, like seconds, right? So with this in mind, I, I want to suggest an idea that, that an explanation that came to me regarding a, another famous verse in the Torah, which is Moshe is at the burning bush. He's having this awesome prophetic moment from God, basically getting the entire mission to take the Jews out of Egypt and bring them to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. Because remember, the burning bush happens at Mount Sinai. And God says, I want you to take the Jews out of Egypt and bring them back here. Okay, so the whole grand vision is coming to Moshe at the burning bush. And Moshe says back to God, I'm the heavy of tongue. Right? I, not me, not me. I, I'm not a speaker. Okay, so I want to suggest another understanding of what Moshe may have been saying on another level, on a deeper level, okay? So let's just do the classic understanding of it, because even the classic understanding is very beautiful, which is that Moshe had a speech impediment, and he felt like um, this handicap would, um, would uh, kind of block him from performing his divine mission. Um, not only that, but he felt that because he was not an orator, that that people wouldn't listen to him. So I don't know who said it, but a, a great rabbi explained it this way, and it's a wonderful explanation, makes a lot of sense, which is that that God precisely wanted someone with a speech impediment and who was not an orator, so that people shouldn't think that the reason why everyone's gravitating toward Moshe is because he was this great charismatic leader and that they just kind of flock to him as human beings will flock to great leaders, right? But rather, precisely the fact that someone who could hardly speak at all is conducting all these miracles and drawing all these people is proof that it's not coming from him, but that it's coming from God. And so, actually, the fact that he had a speech impediment makes him the perfect person for this. That's, that's, that's probably the classic way of understanding um, 
what what's going on in the Torah, and and I don't mean to um, to suggest otherwise, but I, I want to just suggest another level to it as well. Now imagine Moshe is getting a prophetic vision of reality, which he was. That means multiple dimensions. Spiritual realms on top of spiritual realms. Plus, remember, the Torah existed before the world was created, which means he must have seen in some form all 613 mitzvahs as well, in addition to worlds on top of worlds on top of worlds. Now imagine you, you're that person, right? <laughs> you're Moshe, and you're seeing something so infinite, so beyond. And you understand that your job is to communicate this to people? What would you say? Well, here's what you might say. I can't communicate this. I am heavy of tongue. I am incapable of translating this vision to people. So now, with this in mind, I want to give it an an explanation to something else, another classic bit of Torah, which we've spoken about, which is, it says in Perkei Avos, you ready for this? Remember, we're talking about speaking. We're talking about speaking and communicating the awesomeness of everything. The awesomeness of all of the mitzvahs and all the worlds and everything else like this. So with this in mind, I want to suggest that this is what it means that God spoke the world into creation. Why does it say that? Isn't that strange language? God doesn't have a mouth. Why does it say God spoke the world with ten utterances into creation. Why does it say that? Why does it use that verb, speaking? So what I want to suggest, and by the way, the ten utterances of creation correlate with the ten spherot, with each utterance another sphere comes down until the entire world is created. Right? And I think that maybe what it means on one level that God spoke the world into creation is that in creating the world, God made it possible to communicate what is going on in the, in the vast infinity of creation. He made it so that it could become intelligible to us. Who knows what not mixing wool and linen correlates with in the higher worlds? It's so awesome that somehow God took some ethereal realm of the infinite and made that accessible to us through this particular action. Isn't that something? And all of the mitzvahs correlate with heavenly realms. And God was able to communicate that to us through the Torah. He spoke the world into creation. Now listen to this. Listen to this. And we'll start to tie up everything now. God willing. And I saw this from the Or HaChayim. HaKodesh. You know, by the way, he's one of our greatest, 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 greatest tzaddikim. And, you know, they in the, in the Tanakh, we have the story of Daniel in the lion's den, right? That's one of those stories that everybody knows, that that they took hungry lions and 
put them in with Daniel. And uh, and they just kind of left him alone completely. And that, that, that couldn't be. So then they threw someone else in, thinking the lions weren't hungry, and they devoured that person. The same thing happened with the Or HaChayim, and this is just a few hundred years ago. They actually fed him to the lions, and the lions just sat at his feet. This is contemporary history. So if you want just a little taste of who we're hearing from right now. He said the following, and it blew my mind. He gives a very amazing explanation of why Moshe Rabbeinu is not allowed into Israel. And basically, the key passage in the Torah to understanding why Moshe was not allowed into Israel is because it was for the sake of the Jewish people. And that's a phrase that's in the Torah itself. For your sake, Moshe says, for your sake, meaning for, for, for the entire nation of Israel, Moshe was not allowed in. Because had Moshe been allowed in, the Jewish people were not on the spiritual level at that point where they would do no wrong. They were still, we were still refining ourselves. We were still getting it together, basically. But once you get into the land of Israel, the stakes go up. And Moshe would have built the Beis HaMikdash. And then the Jewish people who were still refining themselves and not yet on the, on the level of really being where we needed to be, would have done something wrong. And God would have wanted to perform a tikkun, a fixing, and the obvious tikkun would be take away the base of Migdash so that you can spare the people. But if Moshe had built the base of Migdash, it would have been of such perfection that God would have taken the people instead. And that's, that's not what we wanted. Okay, this you probably know already. This is a classic piece of Torah. But listen to what the Yor HaChayim says. He says, he brings that, what I just told you. He says, now you're all going to have a question which is, then what's this whole idea of Moshe hitting the rock? And because Moshe hit the rock, instead of speaking, remember we're talking about speaking, instead of speaking to the rock, that's why, that's why, um, that's why Moshe didn't go in, because he hit the rock. So now listen to this. This This is amazing. This is amazing. Now remember, let's remember about Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim is about the objective reality, recognizing that all that exists is God, and that's the foundation. Not that I exist, and I, out of my goodness, acknowledge the fact that there might be something higher, and let's call him God, and I'll even do some things for him. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about understanding that all that exists is God. Right? And that God has a dream for me. These are the mitzvahs that that I'm obligated by. Okay, so now listen to this. Again, the question is, if we're going to say that Moshe was not allowed into the land of Israel for the sake of the Jewish people because they weren't on the level, then what's this whole business with hitting from the rock? So so the Or HaChaim says the following, had Moshe spoken to the rock, like he was supposed to, like he was supposed to, had Moshe spoken to the rock, and the rock exploded with water, in a positive sense, you know, like it just gushed water, and everyone all of a sudden had water. Just because Moshe spoke to the rock, that this is God's will, that the rock should give off abundant outpourings of water, the Jewish people would have done tshuva for the whole sin of the spies. On the spot, they would have done tshuva. They would have recognized that all there is is God, that all that God only means good, and they would have rectified everything. 
And then once they had rectified everything, then there would be no problem with Moshe leading the Jewish people into the land of Israel because the Jewish people would have been on the level at that point. And that was the sanctification that God bemoans didn't happen in those verses. If you look at those verses in the Torah, in Parshas Chukas, that was the sanctification of God's name that God himself bemoans didn't get communicated to the Jewish people. If you understand that all of reality is on the, not just the animate level, like I'm the center of everything, on the inanimate level, that all of reality is listening and corresponding and obeying the word of God precisely, one ten thousand percent. Like, do you know how great your table is in your house? You know how great your table is? Your table doesn't move unless you move it. <laughs> God wants it right there. And one hundred percent it stays right there. Like inanimate objects. Not just dead and not listening, listening so well. If you, if all of us appreciated that everything is cleaving to the Word of God, then our consciousness expands so much and everything opens up to us. And that's Yira. That's the greatness of Yira. That's Yira. That's this immersive quality to understand that I'm just one of the, just one of the participants, right? Just one of the aspects of this awesome, awesome thing. And and don't, God forbid, for a second, think that this limits you or denies you of your individuality. God forbid. Because within the context of this, God is so great, within the context of this, he makes this vast variety of creatures, us included, and and all of us are different, and all of us have different talents. And all of us are able to bring our uniqueness to the party. And to do it in our special ways. You know, if I were, imagine I get hired, um, you know, an entry-level job at, I don't know, let's say it's one of the big talent agencies in Hollywood, right? And, you know, traditionally they start you off in the mailroom. So imagine I get a job in the mailroom, right? One of these big fancy talent agencies. And I start running around telling everybody, I'm the president. I am the president. (laughs) Here's what you need to do. They throw me out. You understand that intuitively. You understand that. So why are we walking around? Why do we feel as though it's a diminishment in our stature to understand that there's a power higher than us? (laughs) It's completely absurd and illogical. Okay, I'm going to uh, just finish up where we started. Uh, I want to read you my short little poem called Learning. First you know nothing. Then you learn a little and you think you know something. But now you know even less than you did before because you think you actually know something. Then you learn more and actually do know something. But you ruined it by forgetting that you really know nothing. Then you learn even more and you finally realize that you really, really do know nothing. Which means you finally know something. Baruch Shem Kavod Machuso Okay, thank you so much for allowing me to share these moments with you. What follows now are so, some questions and answers. So, it was probably me. No, 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 I, I'm pretty sure it was me. 
So we're trying to understand better this idea that that God spoke the world into creation. So let's let's take a few steps back. So we know that the the, the Talmud says that the Torah existed before the world was created. So what what does that mean? Um, so it doesn't mean that there was a Torah scroll floating up in outer space because there was no time or space. So what does it mean that the Torah existed before the world was created? So the the example that I always like to give is that um, before you do something, you have a plan to do it. Okay? So so for instance, here here's something that it sounds like fun, but I for the most part, I don't think it happens, which is that you... Hurry your family, pack your bags, pack your bags. We got to get to the airport. We got to get to the airport. The plane's going to, the plane's going to leave. And then you, you get to the airport and you look at the big board of departures and you say, now, where should we go? Where should we take our family trip? <laughs> right? So <laughs> most people don't do that. They, they know where they're going. They know where they're going in advance. So that was the case with Hashem as well. Before Hashem created the world, Hashem had a plan for the world. And um, he had dreams for the world, if you want to put it in, in, in that way. Um, and, and, and those were, it, it was going to be this world where people were going to do awesome chesed with each other, uh, kindness. It was going to be a world where, where people kept Shabbos. They, they, they weren't going to work on the, this, the seventh day. Um, all sorts of amazing things that they were going to remember Hashem in all sorts of ways, like putting on tefillin and, and putting up mezuzahs and, and all sorts of things like that. So, so God had this very intricate, really, vision for what um, the human experience was going to be. We weren't going to kill. We weren't going to murder. We weren't going to steal from each other. We weren't going to embarrass each other. Um, and he shaped that vision into the physical world. So he took these thoughts that he had, which imagine what what the thoughts of God are. Like there's beyond, 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 beyond. As as uh, as it says, as the Navi says, as the prophet says, uh, from God, God says, "My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways." So you're talking about before God creates the world, what are God's ways and what are God's thoughts? And yet we know that on some level he had these thoughts about what the Torah was going to be um, before he created the world. Because the Torah existed before he created the world. That's our tradition. So, So now God, so to speak, shapes these divine energies, bakes in all of these mitzvahs, which were exalted pre-material universe thoughts. He bakes them into the world itself. Now, how was he able to translate these awesome, before the world even existed thoughts, before time and space existed thoughts, into a physical plane? Well, he's going to have to communicate them somehow. In other words, this world itself is going to have to be a testimony and a living um, uh, workplace, if you will, to implement to implement these divine visions. Well, how is he going to do that? He's so he. I'm suggesting he speaks the world into existence. In other words, speaking implies communication. He communicates these beyond time and space thoughts into a physical plane. It has to be communicated. So that's why I'm suggesting that's why God spoke the world into into reality. Because it could have said God just desired the world into existence. There are a lot of other poetic 
words that could have been used. God conjured reality into existence. For the sages to use the word spoke when God doesn't have a mouth, when God doesn't have any physicality to him, for the sages to use the word spoke the world into existence, that needs an explanation. And so what I'm suggesting is, is that God communicated this trans beyond meta meta time and space reality into the physical plane. He communicated it to us through the Torah to show us what his vision of the world was. In other words, this very act of creating the world was a form of divine communication. Hopefully that explains it better. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.